We live in a world of promises made and promises broken. Politicians make promises of no new taxes, and then once they're elected, legislation is passed that raises our tax liability. Companies make promises, declaring that your job is secure. You're a valuable member of the team. You have nothing to worry about. Then on Monday, the boss calls you in and gives you the boot. And a few weeks later, you discover that your replacement is half your age and earning half your salary. Coaches make promises of more playing time. But then after the game, you realize that your number never was called. Supervisors make promises, declaring to you that you're the leading candidate for the promotion at work. But when the announcement's made, you realize that you've been passed over for Debbie in accounting. Fathers make promises, telling Junior, I will be at every one of your soccer games. And then Johnny looks up at halftime and dad is nowhere to be found. Mothers make promises, saying to their teenage daughters, now sometime this school year, you and I will go on a weekend getaway, just mother and daughter. But here we are at the end of school and that weekend getaway never materialized. Teenagers make promises to mom and dad, declaring, I'll be home by midnight on Friday night. But it's 1.30 on Saturday morning, and mom and dad are pacing the floor. Mom is anxious. Dad's just downright angry. A man and a woman make promises. Before God, a minister, family, and friends, they declare to each other, I do. And then after a few years, the marriage deteriorates into irreconcilable differences. And by their actions, what they declare to a watching world is, I don't. Promises made, promises broken. I realize that we live in a uh, swirling society of promises made, promises broken. So this morning when you hear me say, I have seven promises for you, you automatically think to yourself, how can I believe this guy? I realize that the one who makes these promises today is far more trustworthy than me. For the one who declares these promises to you is none other than Jesus the Christ. If he says it, he will do it. If he makes the promise, he will keep the promise because he and he alone is trustworthy. So this morning, I want you to know that promises will be spoken today. And don't become jaded don't become cynical, if not sarcastic, because I want you to know that the one who makes the promises has the power to keep them. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. That's located on the back porch of the Bible. It's the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3. Today, I want to read verses 7 to 13. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As today, we continue our seven-part sermon series examining the seven letters to the seven churches as recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 3, let's begin at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet. And they will acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, we travel to Philadelphia. Oh, no, not Pennsylvania, but Asia Minor. Philadelphia is not located too far from the other cities that we have traveled to over the last several weeks. Not far from Ephesus, not far from Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira or Sardis, not too far even from Laodicea, from which we will visit next week. Philadelphia is the youngest of the seven cities listed in Revelation 2 and 3. She was founded in 189 B.C., known as a military town, known as an agricultural community. The people of Philadelphia were hardworking farmers. Most of them had vineyards. They were known for their vineyard production. This was a town that was also located not too far from volcanoes. Now, you automatically know that could be kind of dicey if you're located and living near a volcano. But was, what was even more problematic was not the volcano, but the earthquakes that seemed to rock this city of Philadelphia to its core. In fact, in 17 AD, there was such a severe earthquake that it left the city in shambles, making all of its residents evacuate that little town. Because of the constant tremors and the occasional earthquakes that would come through Philadelphia, the wall around the city had cracks and gaping holes from the foundation all the way up to the top. The buildings in that town, they were in shambles. The homes, they were not secure structures. In fact, the people living in Philadelphia were not on a firm foundation. It was constantly moving right underneath their feet. And Jesus plants a church there. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus plants a church in a place that is pretty unsettled. Now, the Roman government, they tried to help from time to time. They would give tax breaks in the efforts and the hopes that people would be able to rebuild their walls, their cities, their homes, and their buildings. But at the end of the first century, in 92 AD, the emperor, Domitian, did something that left people scratching their heads. He commanded for all the farmers in Philadelphia to cut down at least half of their vineyards. That didn't make any sense. Their whole economy was based on the vineyard. Now, word on the street, or a word through the grapevine, no pun intended. Word through the grapevine was the reason that Domitian did this was because he wanted to cut out the competition for the vineyards there in Rome and Italy. 
So he just wanted to do away. And if you know anything about a vineyard, you realize that, that grapevines take years to develop. So by cutting down half of them, in essence, he was making this a poverty-stricken town. They were in shambles physically, in shambles monetarily, in shambles spiritually. <laughs> Yet God raised up his church right there. In the midst of all that upheaval, God planted his church. If this study has taught us anything about the church, it is this, that the church is at home any place, any time. The church is at home any place God plants it at any time in human history. Whether it's planted in the big metropolis like Ephesus that boasted a population of over 250,000 people, which in those days was a big city, or whether it's planted here on shifting, shaky sand of Philadelphia in a poverty-stricken little bitty old town, God's church is at home any place, any time. It also tells us that nothing can stop the church of our Lord. Nothing can stop it. The government can't stop it. A crisis can't stop it. Uh, more money or less money can't stop it. There's nothing that can stop it. No person, no situation, no circumstance. Nothing can thwart the word of God, the will of God, or the people of God. My friend, if you're part of the church, you're part of something that's far greater than yourself. If you're part of the church, you're part of an unstoppable force. If you're part of the church, you're part of something that nothing in this world can stand up against. You are on on the winning side. Jesus is our king. We follow him as a faith family because we are his church and because we are his church we are an unstoppable force. So Jesus writes this letter to the church at Philadelphia. This is one of only two letters where Jesus has no word of condemnation. In other words, everything he says is positive. If you've been with us very long, you understand usually how Jesus writes and goes is he says, uh, here are a few things you do well, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And you kind of get into that rhythm, you get into that habit. So when you read the letter, you expect it to turn on the dime. You expect him to say, you do some things well, nevertheless, I have this against you. This is the only letter outside the letter to Smyrna. Those two letters are the only one of the seven where Jesus does not give a word of negativity. He speaks a word of commendation, not condemnation. Now, why is that? Well, he says about the church in Philadelphia, he says, you have kept my word, you have not denied my name. And because of that, he has great things to say. You have kept my word, you have not denied my name. What does he mean by that? The word keep means to obey. So he's saying, you've obeyed my word. You've kept my word. To deny means to say no to. You have not denied my name, which means you have not said no to Jesus. You've said yes to him. What he wants you to do, you do. Where he wants you to go, you go. You say yes to him. What he's speaking of is a level of faithfulness that encompasses not only action but attitude. You have obeyed my word. You have kept my word. By your actions, you have proven yourself faithful. And even by your attitudes, it's not like you had just a foul attitude and you were just obedient just because, well, you just thought that was the only way that you would be blessed by the Lord. No, you were obedient and you wanted to be obedient because you never said no to Jesus. So you constantly said yes to him and you were obedient to him. I think this is why Jesus has nothing but positive things to say to the church at Philadelphia. Let me ask you this. 
When Jesus looks at this faith family, what does he want from us? Does he want us to be the biggest, the boldest, the busiest church? Does he want us to be the loudest, the most energetic, the most enthusiastic church? Does he want us to be the most innovative and the most creative church? I don't know, but this much I can tell you. He does want us to be faithful. He wants us to be a faithful church. Faithful to what? Faithful to his word. And he wants us to be faithful in even our attitudes so that we do not deny his name. He wants us to be faithful. What is the one thing that you need in every stage of life? Faithfulness. What is the one thing that God requires of you in every season of life? Faithfulness. Teenager, you are never too young to be faithful unto Christ. Even at the earliest stages of your faith journey, what Jesus requires of you is faithfulness. Don't forget what Jesus said through Paul to Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, because of your age. But set an example for the entire congregation in your speech, in your life, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. You're never too young to be faithful unto the Lord. Don't forget that. What God requires of you at this stage of your life is faithfulness. Keep his word. Don't deny his name. To the young adults in the crowd, those who are maybe newly married, maybe starting a family, chasing a career, those who are actively involved in the community, maybe even coaching a travel team, planning vacations, going to the lake, being involved in this, that, and the other, all sorts of things, my friend, don't get too busy to neglect faithfulness. At this stage in your life, when you have so many things to do, so many places to go, so many things tugging and pulling at you, don't neglect faithfulness. What God requires of you in this stage of your life, when everything is just hectic and crazy, what does God require of you? Faithfulness. To the middle-aged adults in the crowd, let's just be honest. Many of you are in a place right now where... You're making more money than you've ever made in your professional career. You have less debt than you've ever had. You have more spendable income. Some uh, may be at that stage of life where you're just becoming a grandparent. And you think to yourself, yes, this is why I didn't kill my children. And you think to yourself, this is awesome. This grandparenthood, this is great. And life is, is um, kind of comfortable. I mean, I know life can always be scary and it can change on a dime. It can change in a moment. But, but for some of you, you think to yourself, life, life is more comfortable and fun and enjoyable. I have the health. If I want to go, I can go. I have the grandchildren. I have the resources. My friend, if that's you, don't get too relaxed to be faithful. What does God require of you in, that, in this stage of life? He requires faithfulness. You keep his word. Do not deny his name. To the senior adults in the crowd, those people who would acknowledge that uh, you're in the twilight years of life, you, you know that you have lived more years on earth than you have left to live on earth. You, you, you understand that? You're aware of that? 
you think to yourself, listen, I've been there, done that. I've done everything. Uh, everything I've ever wanted, all my, my bucket list checked off, all my goals and dreams, they're checked off. When it comes to uh, service, when it comes to work, uh, listen, been there, done that. Got the pamphlet, the t-shirt to prove it. Why don't we let somebody else do the work, somebody else do the task, somebody else do the job? I've been there. I've put in my time. I've done what needed to be done. I did more than what was asked of me in my years. My friend, can I just remind you that you never retire from faithfulness? You, you never retire from this Christian walk? What is, what's expected of you in these days? What's expected of you, senior adult? In this stage of life, faithfulness is expected. God wants you to obey and keep his word. Do not deny his name. What does God expect of us from every stage and season of life? He expects the same thing. What we're going to need in the future is what we need right now. And what we need right now is what we needed back then. It is faithfulness unto the Lord. This is what God requires of his church. He's always required this of his church. And when he sees it in Philadelphia, he commends them because the young people, the teenagers, the middle-aged, the senior adults, they are faithful unto the Lord. And so he says, because of your faithfulness I just want to give you seven promises that you can take to the bank now before you become jaded and cynical and question oh yeah how can I make sure that Jesus is good for these promises keep in mind these are not promises coming from me it's coming from someone far more trustworthy than me it's Jesus how does he define himself the one who is holy and true he is holy. He's set apart. He is unlike anything else in this world. He is true. It's not just that he speaks truth. He is truth. He can't help but speak truth because he embodies truth. He is the definition of truth. He is holiness. He is truth. Therefore, everything he says, everything he does must be holy and true. In other words, you can trust him. He's trustworthy. You can trust Christ. So he says to the church, I give you seven promises. The first one is this. Jesus promises to be the strength of the church. I open a door that no one can shut. I shut a door that no one can open. He is the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God. He is the strength of the church. He says, there's a door open in front of you, and you need to go through it in obedience. It's a door that's open and it will not shut until I shut it. No person, no government, no situation, no circumstance, no crisis, no earthquake, no volcano can shut it. I leave the door open. What's he talking about? Well, for starters, he's talking about the door of salvation. It's open to anyone who will believe. The door of salvation is open and no one will shut it except Jesus. And once he shuts it, no one can reopen it. So while it's open, come in. And how do you come in? By faith. The one thing that's required of you at every stage of life is required at the very beginning of your new birth. It is faith. God requires faith from you and of you. So by faith, you enter that door of salvation. It can also be understood as a door of opportunity, a door of service. And Jesus says, if a door is wide open in front of you, go through it. 
We wrestle with the will of God, don't we? Well, what does God want me to do? Well, here, here's a simple question. Is the door of opportunity open before you? Yeah, I think it is. Well, then go through it. Just simply walk through it. If it's open, who opened it? Well, I don't know, preacher. Maybe the devil opened it. No, what did the text just say? Jesus said, I open it. And if I open it, no one can shut it. And if it's shut, then don't try to pry it open because no one can open it. Have you ever tried to arm wrestle Jesus? You ever tried to push and nudge? You ever tried to force your way into something? You ever tried to open a door that's closed? Not only do you dislocate your shoulder, but you dislocate your soul. You can't do it. Because Jesus says, I am the strength of the church. The, the church's strength rests in Christ. He is our strength. He opens the doors for us, so we go on mission. He opens the doors for us, so we minister in his name. He opens the doors for us, so we walk through boldly, unashamed and unafraid. Because if the door's open, he opened it. And no one can shut it but Christ. And if we come up to an opportunity, a place of perhaps service or mission, and if it's closed, we can't force it open. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I open the door and only I can shut it. I shut the door and no one else can open it. Jesus promises to be the strength of the church. Secondly, Jesus promises to be the vindication of the church. He says, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan. This is the second time we've heard that phrase. He describes the synagogue of Satan as those who think they are Jews, the people of God, but they are not, they are liars. I will make them come and bow down to you. I will make them come and submit to you. What is he saying? I will fight your battles for you. I will be your strength. I will be your vindication. I realize that you look outside your windows and you think that the wicked are winning. You think that the, the wicked person has no uh, difficulties, has no diseases, has no ill, uh, has everything uh, wonderful in life. You think that the wicked are winning, but God says, I am your vindication. I will right all the wrongs. I will do it in my time and in my way. What Jesus is doing is he's reversing the understanding in the Old Testament. For it was believed in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would come and bow down to Israel. Now, Jesus is affirming there's a remnant, always has been, always will be. There is a believing remnant in Israel, and they are part of God's people. But what has Jesus done? He's also grafted in Gentiles, barbarians, heathens, pagans, which, by the way, that's you and me. I mean, most of us, pretty much all of us, we, we are the Gentiles. We are the heathens. We are the non-Jewish people. And what has God done in Christ? He's grafted us in. He is our vindication. So those who are outside of the people of God, they will come and bow down to the people of God. Jesus promises to be the vindication of the church. He also promises to love the church, third. He says, I will make them acknowledge that I have loved you. Me? Yes, you. But, but I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm a barbarian. I'm a pagan. Yes, but you're a follower of Christ. I will make them, the world, acknowledge that I have loved you. The way Jesus says this is that uh, I have loved you in the past, and that past love carries present implications, so I'm still loving you. 
And you've got the implication, I will continue to love you in the future. I promise to love you. And what's the word for love? It's the word agape. It's that, it's that wonderful Greek word. It means unconditional, unmerited, unending favor of God. It is God's love that is gushing out. It is God's love that is chasing us like a hound of heaven. It is God's love based not on our performance, but on his passion. He loves us not because we're cute, not because we're creative, not because we can somehow benefit him in his kingdom. He loves us simply because he is lovable. He is the God of love. He loves his church. And his love for the church is unending. It is unmatched. It is unparalleled. I understand that when, when people get married, they have a new profound appreciation for love. When they become uh, parents, they have a new deeper understanding of love. When they become grandparents, they have an even deeper, more profound, joyous understanding of love. I get that. But all of that pales in comparison to the love that God has for his church. You're part of something that's far greater than yourself. You're part of something where God says, I love you and I always will. I love you. There's nothing you can do to make Christ love you less. There's nothing you can do to make Christ love you more. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. I just quoted for you John 3, 16, 17, and 18. And in there, God portrays his passion and his purpose and his plan. His passion for God so loved the cosmos. That's you, that's me. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Now why? What's the purpose? The purpose of sending Jesus was not for condemnation, but for salvation. If God wanted us to stay condemned all he had to do was do nothing. But Jesus came not to condemn us further, as if that's even possible. He came not to further condemn us, for we are totally condemned. But he came to save us. How? What's the plan? How's a person saved? How's a person go from condemnation to salvation? By faith in Jesus Christ. He who believes... In the Son of Man is not condemned. He who does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. My friend, you are loved. The church of Jesus Christ is loved because of who he is. So Jesus says, uh, I promise strength to the church. I promise vindication to the church. I promise love to the church. He fourthly says, I promise to protect the church because of your perseverance, because of your uh, gentle endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Oh, because of your perseverance. That reminds us of what the author says in Hebrews. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured, persevered such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Do you know why you persevere? Because he persevered. You endure because he endured. You are faithful because he is faithful. Consider him. That's why you don't give up. That's why you don't give in. That's why you don't quit. 
on Christ or this Christian thing? Because Jesus never quit on you. Because of your endurance, Jesus said, I will keep you, I'll protect you, I will keep you from the hour of trial. What does that mean? Well, the hour of trial has to be severe suffering, intense tribulation. It could very well mean that indicator of the end of time, that tribulation period. And and Jesus says, I will keep you from that. I will keep you from the hour of trial. No, the first reading on the surface, it appears as if Jesus says, we're out of here. I'm going to keep you from it as if we're going to be exempt from it. And maybe that's right. But other, other theologians have looked even closer and said maybe it can also be understood as keep you from within it. What they're talking about is that God may not keep us from the suffering, but he'll certainly keep us through the suffering. It's very possible. It's a possible interpretation and reading. You think about it from all the scripture. God did not keep Abraham from Mount Moriah, but he kept him through Mount Moriah. Did not keep Joseph from the pit, but certainly he kept him through the pit. Did not keep the people of God from enslavement or the wilderness, but he kept them through enslavement and the wilderness. He did not keep Jonah from the smelly belly of the fish, but he kept him through the smelly belly of the fish. Did not keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, but kept them through the fiery furnace. And ultimately, he did not keep Jesus from the cross of Calvary, but he kept him through the cross of Calvary. So whether we're exempt from it or whether we're protected within it, either way, I'm okay, and so are you as the people of God. Either way, we're okay. Why? Because Jesus is our protection. Maybe he will exempt us from experiencing some suffering. Or maybe we'll have to go through some suffering, but even by going through it, we will be protected within it. Either way, what I'm saying is that Jesus got you. Jesus has your back. He will keep you from the hour of trial. The fifth promise, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Oh, what a great one. I am coming. It will be visible. It will be physical. It will be undeniable. I am coming soon. That's great. But how soon is soon? I don't know. But I do know this much. It's sooner than it's ever been. We're closer to it than we've ever been. It's soon, but I don't know how soon. So, okay, what do we do in the meantime? If he's coming soon, what do we do? Do we just... Relax? Do we just go on vacation? Hey, he's coming soon. What what do we do? Jesus says, hold on to what you have. Why would he say that? Once again, he's requiring of them what he's always required of them, faithfulness. Hold on to what you have. If he's telling them to hold on to what they have, then certainly what they have will carry them through whatever they will experience until he comes back, right? Somebody tells you, hey, hold on to that ticket because you're going to need that ticket to get in. So what do you do? You hold on to that ticket. You put it safely in your pocket. You don't just lackadaisically lay it down. You hold on to it. Why? Because you're going to need it. What Jesus is saying is what you have, you hold on to. What are you holding on to? You're holding on to Christ. You're holding on to your convictions. You're holding on to the reality. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. You're holding on to the truth that this is the inerrant, infallible word of God. You're holding on to that which holds on to you. You're holding on to the truth of Jesus. Hold on to that, Jesus says. Because you're going to need it. 
You're going to need it to be faithful until I come back and rescue you. He promises not only that he will return for the church, but sixthly, he promises that he will be the stability for the church. He says to this church that's geographically uh, setting on an inevitable earthquake. It's shifting. It's moving around, right? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, listen, uh, to him overcomes, I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. What a picture of stability. You, my friend, you're going to be a pillar in the temple of God unmoved, unshakable. You will be there permanently. It's a place where the friend never leaves and the enemy never invades. There are a lot of definitions of heaven. That's a pretty good one, right? I mean, yes, it's a place where God dwells with his people. It's a place where Jesus reigns supreme, but Jesus reigns supreme everywhere. Heaven is that place where the friend of God never leaves and the enemy of God never invades to harm or to hurt. You will be a pillar, that sign of stability. What is our stability? What is our security? It's not in money. It's not in the government. It's not in military. It's not in personal might. It's not even in our health. What is our security? Our security is in Christ. He is the firm foundation. But there, I told you seven promises, so let me get to the seventh one. Jesus promises a new name for the church. He layers this one. I will give you the name of my God. I will give you the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. And then ultimately he says, I will give you my name. He's just layering one right on top of the other. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God. I'll give you my name. You've seen those shirts that say property of and then you fill in the blank. What Jesus is stamping and tattooing on his church is that your property of Christ, your property of Jesus. A name in the Old Testament and the New Testament carried significance. A name communicated essence and character. And so Jesus says, I will be the banner over you. You'll have my name. I, I, I will name you. I will claim you. I will retrieve you. I will keep you. Uh, I will protect you. You will be mine. You are mine. You are my property. So the banner over your life is Jesus. That's why we say we can't make too much of him. We make much of Jesus. Why? Because he's our banner. He is what we live for. He's what we think about. He's what we worship. He is Jesus. He is the banner over this church. This church does not belong to me. This church does not belong to you. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It's his church. So his is the name that calms my fears. His is the name that wipes away all my tears. His is the name that soothes my soul. His is the name that makes me whole. His is, is the name that puts my life down the right path. He is the one who absorbed all of God's holy wrath. He is the one who gives my life new direction. He is the one who is my hope, my peace, my love, and my resurrection. He is... My king, he is the one to whom I submit everything. There's something about the name of Jesus 
At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. We belong to him. Oh, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I've loved thee, my Jesus, it's now. Friend, have you trusted Jesus this morning? I mean, have you really trusted him? Because he is trustworthy. You can give him everything and he can handle it. Have you given him all your deep, dark secrets? Have you given him all of your pain? Have you given him all your past? Have you given him all your future? Have you given him full control? Have you trusted Christ? Maybe you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus. Today can be the day of your salvation. Maybe you're here today, you have trusted Jesus. But let's just be honest, there's something that you hold in your heart because you wonder, can Jesus be really trusted with this? This is a big one. This is a problem. This is a predicament. This is a health concern. This is a financial problem. This is this or that. And you're holding on to something. My friend, I want to tell you, he can handle it because he's trustworthy. So this morning, trust Jesus. And I'll tell you, I'll go ahead and tell you, The one thing he's going to ask of you is faithfulness. That's the one thing he'll always ask of you. He'll ask you to keep his word and not deny his name. He wants you to be a godly guy or a godly gal. To be crazy about Christ. Will you follow Jesus? He's worthy. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. Lord, help us to trust the one who is trustworthy. Lord, I pray that people will take you at your word, not me, you. They will trust you. This is your word. They can believe it. You said it, you'll do it. These are seven promises that you give to us, your church. Help us to trust you more today as we leave than even as when we walked in an hour ago. In Jesus' name, amen.